This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 21st, 2018. Back in February, I talked on the podcast to the prominent British feminist Linda Bellos, particularly about the acceptance of trans women by feminists. Following that, a listener suggested a prominent YouTuber to put forward another point of view on that topic. So let's talk to her. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. There are only two YouTubers who've ever made me laugh out loud, intentionally anyway, and I'm delighted to have one of them on the line, Natalie Parrott of ContraPoints. Um, that's a YouTube channel. Um, for people who've never seen or heard the channel, can you describe yourself? Yeah. Hi, my name is Natalie. Um, the channel ContraPoints is a project I've been working on for exactly two years now. And basically, it's a YouTube channel that discusses politics, contemporary politics from a left-leaning perspective, um, and which, in addition to just sort of talking about politics, sort of dramatizes it with costumes, characters, um, and sort of like a jokes and things. It's kind of a half entertainment, half uh, information mm-hmm. channel. And as you present yourself, you were born male, I'm correct, but that, how do you how do you present yourself now? How do you define yourself? I yes, I was assigned male at birth, um, and I am a trans woman. So I uh, started transitioning sort of halfway through the YouTube channel last summer. So it's kind of confusing for new people to the channel. Uh, if you watch my videos out of order, it's going to be gender chaos. But uh, yes, for the last, since last August, I've been medically transitioning. Um, before that, I went through a period of being sort of, I call myself genderqueer or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just having a, a sort of ambiguous gender presentation. But I ultimately decided that what I needed to do for myself was to medically transition and live my life as a as a woman. I have to say, for people who haven't seen the channel, I mean, it's an amateur production, obviously, but it's just fantastically done. The amount of time that must go into the videos, you playing various different parts on screen at the same time. I don't even know how you do that. Um, but I want to just start with maybe something a little bit more serious. You're a trans woman in the United States. You are obviously highly politically aware. And one issue that I don't think has hit, trans issues have been prominent in the news recently, but one that issue that hasn't been is violence against trans people. Can you give me either just your own understanding of that or even your own experience of that? Well, trans people in general are, are, are a very vulnerable population and we sort of statistically have are more likely to be unemployed. We, um, as a group, um, are more likely to be the victims of violence, are more likely to be the victims of sexual assault and other groups. Mm-hmm. And this is especially uh, the case of trans women in the United States. And in particular, there's an intersection with race in this country anyway, where a, major- a huge a disproportionate amount of the violence directed at trans women is directed at trans women of color and black trans women in particular. So if you were to pull up a list of the trans women who were murdered in the last year, there's an overwhelming number of them who are um 
black trans women um, mm-hmm. or trans women of color. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons has to do with the um, kind of stigma around male attraction to trans women and that in, you know, communities in particular where there's a kind of idea of masculinity as a as sort of very rigid in it, and there's a need to protect oneself against being seen as homosexual or anything like men who are attracted to trans women. Um, you know, a lot of the way a lot of these stories go is they will, you know, it's, it's not that they suddenly find out that their partner is, is trans. They, they, they know um, in, in almost all cases, but uh, what happens is that their friends or their wider social circle finds out that they're seeing a trans woman. And then to protect their reputation, they, act out in violence against the trans women, and sometimes that leads to murder. The reason that I got in touch with you, I was actually suggested there was a Reddit thread about a previous podcast that I did, and I interviewed a woman called Linda Bellos. She is a prominent British feminist. Um, she's a grandmother in her 60s these days, uh, but in the 1970s and 80s, she was a prominent left-wing figure, often the target of right-wing tabloids. And she really spoke how she kind of late in life found herself astonished to be the target of trans activists in particular, or people who are um, claimed to be activists on their behalf, perhaps. And in particular, she was banned from speaking to a student group in Cambridge University, one of the oldest universities in the world. There does seem to be something of a shift in terms of intolerance here, isn't there? Um, so I don't know the particular case, but it sounds very similar to the case of Germaine Greer, um, uh, any of you know, higher, higher profile radical feminists who, mm-hmm. um, you know, is what we M- call much the same happened to her. I th- I don't yes. know if the, if the ban actually happened in Cardiff University, but but the, it certainly seemed to be similar circumstances. Yes, but in the case of Germaine Greer, at least, I know that she's what we would call a trans-exclusive radical feminist. So Mm -hmm. she essentially denies that trans women have anything to do with womanhood. Um, She says that we're just men, sort of role-playing or something. And, um, you know, this is an idea that contributes to the intense stigma and prejudice and violence against us. So for a lot of trans people, it's, you know, it's like a very serious thing. It's not... Um, it's just sort of trivial intellectual agreement, disagreement, but it's sort of um, a, a kind of bigotry on the level of someone coming to a university campus to argue that uh, women are just inherently inferior or something like that. So, um, I mean, as for whether I agree with the deplatforming tactics, um, I mean, I think it's a matter of case by case basis. I think there are some people who are, you know, especially if they're coming to university to spread bigoted ideas, that there's really not anything to be gained by having them speak on campus. Although I think that um, activists often go too far in these campaigns of backlash against, you know, speakers who are bigoted. And sometimes I think that can be counterproductive, too. Okay, I, I'm interested in that in particular because it seems like not only is there resistance to an idea that you disagree with and, you know, you're entirely free to disagree with that idea, but there seems to be resistance to people even being permitted to express ideas that, that you, I'm using a wider you here, that you disagree with. Yeah, I mean, so this isn't my particular technique at all. On YouTube, I have a channel where I explicitly do discuss these ideas that are mm-hmm. the most politically incorrect and dangerous, and, and I'll talk about them. Yeah. Um, 
but I think that you know it's it's difficult it's to to make a judgment about this because I think that some people it's clear to me that there's not really any reason for them to be speaking out of university. So um, you know a white supremacist like Richard Spencer, for example, I really just mm-hmm. I don't think he belongs on a university campus, and I don't think that. The, the the discussion benefits from him being framed. From pause on that. Pause on that for, yeah. for a second, Natalie. Um, I happen to have a particularly low opinion of Richard Spencer uh, as yeah. well, and I think many uh, you and I are not alone in that by a wide margin. But I'm sure there's lots of people who have a pretty low opinion of you and probably of me, and I would hope that to use the cliche that the ideas would be stronger than the bigotry and that people that we shouldn't be afraid of listening to people who we disagree with even where we think that the that that what they say is really so far outside the mainstream that it is that it is absolutely unacceptable yeah so i'm certainly not afraid of listening to people who i disagree with i've listened to many hours of richard spencer talking but Mm. i think that on when it comes to University is as a platform that hosts debates. And when you host a debate, you're sort of saying that this is the conversation that's worth having mm-hmm. um, implicitly, right? You are sort of, uh, you know, it seems like a neutral thing to do to host a discussion or host a speaker um, because you're just simply hearing their ideas out. But there's still some ideological um, work that's being done in which speakers you choose to um, highlight. So I do think that Sometimes that yeah sure but who may, know, who then who gets to make that decision because well, it's, not, it's not it's not so to. long ago I mean yeah. be realistic about this Natalie it's not so long ago that you wouldn't have had it at all difficult to get a quorum of people to say that a transsexual is somebody so far outside the mainstream that they shouldn't be allowed to address vulnerable young minds. I'm aware of that, but I'm not suggesting that this is some kind of authoritarian decision that should be made. I'm saying this is a conversation that we all need to be having right now mm-hmm. about what are the what are the issues? I mean, is the issue like, you know, uh, I, I just I just don't see the the benefit of having certain speakers on. And again, I think there's a lot of um, debate about which speakers those are, but that's something that we sort of communally and collectively need to negotiate. Um, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had. I think that sometimes the deplatforming thing does get taken too far. I mean, I've essentially been deplatformed myself. Um, Why? I mean, not, 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 um, maybe explicitly, but in essence, I've sort of been pressured by a lot of, you know, lefty Twitter, for instance, to not do a lot of interviews and a lot of events that I get invited to because I simply don't want to deal with the backlash, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of, I think, like soft deplatforming. R- R- no, that's, that's an interesting point. And I just want to hear yeah. the exact facts of that. So y- you clearly have a following on Twitter of people who largely, I guess, agree with you. That tends to be what happens on Twitter and then 10% of haters, I guess. Um, yes. um, you then engage, and I think I, just watching your video channel, you know, I have to say you engage at a very uh, high level with people, who, you know, with ideas that you don't agree with and you come up with intellectual arguments rather than just sticking your fingers in your ears metaphorically or otherwise. Yeah. But you're getting backlash on Twitter from people who are essentially saying that you should just stick your fingers in your ears. Um, yeah, I think that... I mean, I don't want to straw man them as saying I should just stick my fingers in my ears. I think there's a difference between doing that and having a public discussion. So I, I, I'm not completely hostile to the idea that they have, although mm-hmm. I do think it's been taken too far to the point where, you know, it's not just Richard Spencer that we're asking not to speak on universities, but it's, you know, it's even like, you know, Ben Shapiro, conservative intellectuals and, and Jordan Peterson. Or, or Richard like Dawkins. That. 
Right, Richard Dawkins, right. Yeah, Richard and, Dawkins, I mean, who's, who's a, a biologist of immense standing. And yeah. Richard Dawkins, a notable atheist, and made criticisms of Islam. But if he had made criticisms of Christianity or maybe some other religion, nobody would have batted an eyelid because uh, of the particular sensitivities towards Islam. He is then excluded from certain forums and the, the mildest of criticisms, it has to be said. Yeah, I, and I, I do think, as I said, that's been taken too far. I don't think that Richard Dawkins should be deplatformed from university speaking appearances. Um, I think that in cases like that, really, you know, especially since I think he's someone who I disagree with him about many things, but I think he's engaging in good faith, mm-hmm. unlike I think Richard Spencer, who I think is is uh, a charlatan. But I think that Richard Dawkins, you know, someone like that, the better way to deal with it would be to show her many dissenters to show up to his event and really press him on these things in the question and answer. I'll argue your case, in other words. Yes. Um, okay. So well, I understand. I want you know, to get into that, difficult. and uh, what, I, what I want to get into in yeah. that case, and we, I mentioned at the top, and I did that deliberately, uh, the amount of violence against trans people, and I don't want to get into a situation whereby trans people, you know, take one step out of the ditch in terms of being a very put upon minority and are immediately criticized for not being perfect in every in every way. However, uh-huh. I think you'd have to agree that there is an ideology there and language is very often the battlefield of ideological disputes, particularly cultural ideological disputes. And there's been a lot of insistence on change in language sometimes good, for example. So, for example, the the change in language from saying, you know, sex change surgery to saying something like gender affirmation surgery. Mm-hmm. And that's embedding a particular belief into the language. And that's fine if you want to believe that. But if somebody just happens to disagree with you and uses vocabulary that betrays that, they're allowed to do that. That's not anything that is particularly unacceptable in society. Would you agree? I mean, you're allowed to say whatever. Like, you, if if someone wants to call it a sex change surgery, they they're they're permitted to do so. But I'm going to disagree with them because mm-hmm. sex change surgery is not an accurate term. You, you don't change your sex by having that surgery. This is a an anatomical reconfiguration that affirms your gender. And so, I think gender affirmation, or I prefer genital reassignment, I think is 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 more specific and doesn't imply that your sex changes at the moment of surgery. Okay, and there is, for example, a perhaps disputed distinction between the word of gender and sex. Can you, maybe for people who are not so familiar with it, can you just explain how you view that? Uh, well, I think it's, it actually turns out to be really, really complicated. But I think that the traditional way of drawing the distinction is that sex is a biological um, category that describes um, you know, what's usually your reproductive role, male or female, and mm. gender is the social public linguistic category of whether you're a man or whether you're a woman or whether you are androgynous or, you know, and it also encompasses, you know, matters of presentation, masculine, feminine, androgynous. Um, so uh, I think that as it turns out, the, the distinction is not as hard as we think it is. I think that Obviously, gender and biology are sort of related to each other in some way. And I think that, you know, often when we're talking about trans people, we'll say, oh, trans people change their gender, but not their sex. Well, if you're medically transitioning, you're changing, you're changing your biology. I mean, you're taking hormones, you're changing your anatomy. You're not, of course, you're not changing your chromosomes. Or your reproductive capability. Well, you're kind of, in most cases, kind of nullifying your reproductive capability. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you are, you know, and so I think of my own physiology and anatomy as being kind of not really well described at this point as either particularly male or particularly female, but sort of as just transsexual. I can understand the acceptance, people seeking acceptance and people seeking just to be treated politely. It seems to me sometimes, though, that there is and in a, a use of that, and most people like to be polite. Most people think it's nice to be nice. And most people, even when they don't even understand, let alone accept uh, the position of trans people, try to use the language that they think will be most politely accepted. It seems to me sometimes that some people, certainly not all, but some trans activists exploit that and try to create a king's new clothes situation. For example, generating a whole slew of new alleged pronouns like Zer and Z and claiming that anybody who doesn't use them correctly is bigoted against them. I find that this is a exaggeration and and almost something that I've never seen occur. I mean, I know hundreds of trans people online, at least if you include online acquaintances as, mm-hmm. as knowing someone. And I know maybe of those uh, a couple hundred, you know, maybe two or three that use neo pronouns. And even those ones generally use other pronouns when they're in public and only use the new pronouns when they're sort of in private among like queer people who understand this language game. I feel that this notion that a lot of people, that any significant number well, of people it's, it's are demanding that people it's, call Well, hold on. Yeah. It's, it's fairly wide. The, the, but the use of they for a singular yes. is used in very particular cases in English. And I'm a linguist and I know how this works. But using it to, uh, on a known single individual is not something that comes naturally to people. Accusing somebody of being a bad actor because they don't want to say something that's linguistically awkward, that's not, that doesn't really fly, does it? Well, it may not be good strategy, but I think that I'm convinced anyway that among non-binary people who truly feel that they do, do not fit either gender um I don't think it's unreasonable for them to want a sort of gender neutral pronoun. And I think of the available options, they is the most natural. So I agree that it's it's kind of difficult to start using they before because it's kind of a kind – it's a grammatical usage that you're sort of not used to. And that takes time to learn. I mean when we learn a language, we learn the grammar. And so to learn new grammar – takes time. It's a little bit of work. And I, I think I agree that we have to be sort of patient with people as they um, figure it out. But I also think that the fundamental request that's being made is reasonable. But it is also reasonable, perhaps, if people want to do that, to say no. I'm not sure that I think that... Well, why is that reasonable? Well, because it's not reasonable to ask people to change their the language that they speak. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. It's fine to ask them. It's not reasonable to expect that that request is immediately complied with without question. Um, Well, I agree that that it's not realistic to expect that. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of education work needs to be done on the stuff like that. But I think that, uh, you know... The, the story that's been told by you know people like Jordan Peterson has mm-hmm. to you know it's Jordan suggested Peterson, I should that say not everybody might know is a professor of psychology in the University of Toronto and he's yeah. I think famous in narrow circles uh, for taking a stand against what he viewed as compulsion to use uh, these pronouns either by the government on Ontario, in Ontario or the University of Toronto it's not entirely clear. 
Yeah. So without getting into a discussion about the specifics of the situation in Canada, Mm -hmm. I think often it's presented as if non-binary people are sort of authoritarianly demanding that – or using some kind of power to force people to use these pronouns when non-binary people don't have very much influence in society in general. They don't wield a lot of power compared Mm -hmm. to most other people. And so to me – if a non-binary person asks me to call them they, them, I might mess it up a few times, but I'm going to try to do it because I know that to them, it matters. And I think that part of being a social um, animal means sort of understanding that people might have different needs and people might have different things that make them comfortable. And I don't see any reason why I shouldn't accommodate that since it costs me nothing. There is a theme, particularly in the right-wing media, that transgender people or non-binary people are part of a massive army of political correctness Mm -hmm. that are marching to take away your freedoms and it's only moments away from abolishing the First Amendment and forcing everyone to comply uh, with their with their expectations. I have no problem in seeing that that theme, that whole idea is being over-egged and that there are sections of the right-wing media who just enjoy it so much they can't help believing that it's a massive conspiracy against them. Mm-hmm. But that theme... That whole thought process wouldn't really be possible if there wasn't a kernel of truth in it. Isn't that true? Well, I do think that in specific, in particular academic contexts, there are situations where I do think that things have gone too far in terms of restricting what people say and that there is, I think, in a lot of you know, humanities departments, for instance, a kind of general sense among a lot of people of being sort of stifled, of not being able to discuss enough. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I th- I think that, you know, that's a, a sort of a problem for those departments, perhaps. Um, but I think that this is kind of a problem that's much more, I think, sort of local than it's generally characterized. I don't see any danger to the First Amendment, for instance. I don't think in the United States in particular that at any time there's any risk whatsoever of significant curtailments of free speech as a result of, like, I don't know, trans activism or anything of the kind. Okay, let me just play you one clip. This guy uh, is called James Caspian. He is a researcher at Bath Spa University in the UK. And he's particularly active in researching trans issues. So he's not somebody who's coming at it from a right-wing YouTuber point of view. He's somebody who's deeply ingrained in the trans community. And he wanted to do, I think, a doctoral thesis on people who transition their gender either from male to female or the reverse and then wanted to transition back. And I just want to play this clip for you. Um, In my preliminary research, I discovered that there seem to be growing numbers of particularly young people and particularly young women who are transitioning their gender and then regressing. So you went to the university and said, we want to include these people. What did the university then say? They said, you need to resubmit your proposal to the ethics for ethical uh, perusal. And when you did that? And then they said, no, you may not do it. And the reason... The the fundamental reason given was that it um, might cause uh, criticism of the research on social media and criticism of the research would be criticism of the university and they also added it is better not to offend people. Is it true that they sent you a document that includes the, the phrase engaging in a potentially politically incorrect piece of research carries a risk to the university? They did write that, yes. That seems an extraordinary thing for a university to write. That's what I thought. That That's quite a startling thing to hear, isn't it? I So with the research on detransitioning, for instance, mm-hmm. I think that 
you know, with this and other contentious topics like research on um, wait, what? Why is it contentious? Um, well, it's contentious among trans people for a couple of reasons. One is that. Um, can can I suggest why I think it's conten- contentious? Well, and then let me maybe say you, what's you, you go first. Then I'll be polite. I, I think that for a lot of trans people, I mean, and this is something that we see in the media is that detransitioners are used by journalists often. Their their stories are kind of used to tell a story about why, how lots of trans people regret transitioning, and therefore it's not really a good idea, or it's not really safe, or it's this new trend that's you know tricking young people into making these disastrous decisions. And I don't think that the the data actually bears that out. I think that if you look at the detransitioner data, a lot of detransitioners actually end up retransitioning, or they detransition because of social um, you know just because of it's so, so difficult to transition. So, and, so what's and, wrong with researching it? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with researching it. I don't know the specifics of the case. I do think that you know, universities could stand to be less cowardly when it comes to being afraid of people criticizing them on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I do think that people on social media could stand to be less um, vitriolic and intense when it comes to these kinds of things. But I think that you know, at no, this I'm, point, I'm not that's, sure which of those two things is going to happen first. Yeah, exactly. I don't see that happening. So, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do about social media. We live in this world where. Uh, you know, th- these like storms of rage can get kicked up and th- I-, I have no idea what to do about them. Okay. But you would agree that it is an absolutely extraordinary situation when a university writes to one of their doctoral candidates saying that universities shouldn't take part in research that might be viewed as politically incorrect. That's astonishing, isn't it? I think I think that's a bad way of thinking. Yes, I, I don't I don't think that's g- good for universities at all to not do research because it's not, not politically correct. Okay, um, I don't know the particulars and of the case, fo- but in general, from, I agree with that. Okay, yeah. but following on from that, Natalie, given that particular case, don't and I, I think that's one where they got caught, and the guy published the documentation that he got. I suspect those type of things may have happened without creating a paper trail on other occasions as well, but. Isn't there a tiptoeing around the more difficult aspects of transitioning that possibly needs a more rigorous examination? Well, could you be more specific? Well, sure, yeah. So, for example, in the UK, there is the main clinic dealing with transgender people and and surgery in particular. It's called the Tavistock Clinic. They had less than 100 referrals for children, that's to say under 18s, as late as 2009, that's less than a decade ago. They now have more than 2,000 referrals per year. It's a 20-fold increase. They've had referrals for children as young as three years old. Isn't there a danger that clearly transsexuals exist? They are documented going back a long way in time, but isn't there a danger that part of the phenomena that we're seeing now is in effect social contagion? Well, I think that almost any thing that humans do has a social and cultural element to it. And I don't think that transsexuality is exempt from that. I mean, what I would say about the sudden increase in referrals of children to gender clinics is that one, a referral is not the same as transitioning. You know, there's a there's a psychiatric apparatus set up to kind of gatekeep children transitioning. And so that that doesn't always work. And I have examples here, for example, of uh, doctors prescribing with with very little support, particularly from a psychiatric community of uh, general practitioners doctors prescribing gender change hormones to children age 12. 
so usually what they'll do is they'll start puberty blockers around age 12, which sort of delays the um, onset of puberty and gives mm-hmm. you extra years to decide. But I think that in cases where the, that, 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 12-year-olds are taking uh, hormone blockers or they're starting HRT usually around age 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are cases where a person, a, a child has strong cross-sex identification that's stable. They have intense dysphoria about, um, you know, their current gender and going through their natal puberty is going to be a kind of hell experience that's going to sort of, um, you know, it's it's going to be years of difficulty it, just to get to the end of it and have to transition. Everyone? Well, it is for everyone, but it's particularly – it's much worse for trans people. Because how, how do you measure that? Ele- well, I mean you, you – for most people, when you go through puberty, you are – yes, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's difficult. But fundamentally, you're transitioning to the sexed body that you're comfortable with to be essentially psychologically – a girl who's forced to go through male puberty is is much traumatic and difficult on a level that does not is not the case for people who are not trans. And once at, at the end of that puberty, at the age of eighteen, in all probability, they're going to end up having to transition, and it's going to be much more difficult and much more expensive, and require much more uh, invasive s- surgeries and 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 treatments than it would be if they just went through the right puberty in the first place. So it seems to me that as long as there's good psychiatric uh, monitoring of this, it just doesn't make sense for for trans children not to transition as 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 soon as they can. You used the word dysphoria earlier. Can you just explain that for people who don't know what it is? Um, dysphoria is this intense um, unease, dissatisfaction, sadness with being in the wrong body, being in the wrong social role that trans people experience, um, and which often motivates us to transition. That's what we're trying to sort of um, alleviate, at least when we transition, is this this intense sense of just wrongness with our bodies and with our so- social role. And would you classify that as a mental illness? Um, gender dysphoria, and it is classified in, in the United States as a mental illness. I think that I I don't have a problem classifying dysphoria as a mental illness, particularly at the moment when it's it's an important part of the medical um, framework that allows you know causes trans people to transition. I think it's in some sense a mental illness. Um, in, and given that, and I don't particularly want to make a judgment on it, but given that it could be classified as a mental illness, are you sure that the right thing to do is then to transform a person's body to match this incorrect view, uh, mental view of their body, inaccurate in the sense that it doesn't represent their gender? Or, and might it not be a better thing to do to attempt to treat the mental illness to bring their mind towards their their actual physical body. Yeah, so for the most part, trans people do not have inaccurate views of our bodies. We know what our bodies are like, and that's the problem. We want to change our bodies. Um, the attempt to cause, to get trans people to identify with their natal gender and stop having cross-gender which is mm-hmm. called conversion therapy essentially you know you take a child who a, a, a child born male who has a strong cross-gender wish and intense male dysphoria you try to force him to pee standing up you try to get force him to act like a man and try to do all these things this no, does I'm, not, I'm not work. no i'm not suge- is, yeah. I'm, no 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 i'm not suggesting yeah. that but i'm suggesting that essentially what you're saying is and i don't want to use uh, you know a taboo term like mental illness but there's there's not much other uh, vocabulary out there but with any other or with any mental illness the attempt is to bring order to the mind be that with schizophrenia or whatever are you sure that that's 
not the right way to approach uh, gender dysphoria as well and bring the mind towards the body rather than the body towards the mind? Transitioning is the only effective treatment for dysphoria that we know about. Um, I think that if there were some pill that would fix dysphoria, it would, I mean, it just, it just doesn't exist. Um, I find it you know, there's been decades and decades of research done to seeing if homosexuality could be corrected, and mm-hmm. without any without any success, anywhere. and with and with and with much torture of homosexual children along the way. And I don't think this is a good way to, direction to pursue for trans people. Different countries allow people. Uh, well, some countries don't allow any recognition of trans people, but different of the countries that do. Some of them have hurdles which trans people have to essentially jump. There can be uh, psychological or medical evaluations. Other countries allow what is called just self-identification. You come along, you sign a form and you say, I want to be uh, have on my birth certificate, passport, whatever, uh, male or rather than female or vice versa. What's your view on that? I think that self-identification is the easiest way to do this. I mean, I, and I, I think that there's not really any particular reason why we need to have gender on our documents at all. Mm. But I think that insofar as we insist on continuing to identify people by gender on our documents, I think self-identification is a reasonable way to do that. I'm not terribly fond of the idea of you know, coming before a committee and saying whether you want to pee standing up or whatever. I don't think that sounds like a very good idea to me. But one thing that I'm interested in is maybe a level of what comes across as totalitarianism. And I'm generally a pragmatist on all of this. And I think people should be allowed to live their lives whatever way they want. But where there's a demand that an authority recognize something, and as you said, maybe it might be simpler uh, for authorities not to pay, you know, not to have on official documents your gender at all. But there's a couple of cases, and I'll give you uh, a couple of them, and you can maybe comment on, on each of them. One is the case of a person called Jennifer Winfield, who was formerly known as Martin Pointing. Uh, he's convicted, he, she is a convicted rapist, really a dangerous person, was located in a male prison until they chose to change their gender and be relocated to a women's prison. Do you really think that's appropriate? I think that... There are going to be rapists among trans people as a rapist among homosexuals, among heterosexuals, among cis people. Mm-hmm. I think that women's prison is an extremely – or men's prison, rather, is an extremely dangerous place for most trans women. Um, what to do with a, with a person like that, I don't know. I think that situation is complicated and requires a particular um, case. I mean many trans people end up in solitary confinement in the United States, particularly because – they can't, you know, we don't, people don't want to put them in the women's prisons and they can't be protected from the men in the men's prisons. So they're just put into solitary confinement. That's not a great solution either. Sure. You would recognize how, if you were Jessica Winfield, formerly Martin Pointing, that seems like an easy way to beat a rap or at least get out of a, a tough prison that they've been sentenced to for some pretty violent rapes. Um, but of course, uh, I think that. But I think this entire line of questioning is designed to frame trans people, a very vulnerable group, as essentially trying to force our way into women's spaces, as trying to rape women, as trying no, to no, I'm, authoritari- I'm, 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 authoritatively enforce med- medical care on children. You're sort of painting a very villainous picture of trans activists simply by the questions you're asking. No, I'm not. And I would d- draw a distinction between people who you know are and unquestionably trans and people who I mean, might be 
very if exploiting I were a homosexual, that. If I were a homosexual male and you asked me a series of questions about men who had raped little boys in bathrooms, like, do you not see that that in some ways is framing the discussion in a way that's um, hostile to homosexuals? Yeah, absolutely. I take that point. But my point is that where you allow self-identification, and I, to be honest, I don't see any other way, but I'm just trying to see if there's, uh, you know, a, be- a better way through the problem than me. If there are mischievous in mischievously incorrect self-identifications, that is problematic, isn't it? In terms of when, when where prison is concerned, I mean, I I would think that to, in that such a case, that a psychiatric evaluation would would be enough if a person is to determine if a person is genuinely transgender or not. I mean, I I don't know. I think in prison, probably self-identification no is not going to work. Okay, and for um, another case that has come up is um, a, what's called a, a trans woman. That's to say, somebody who was born male and transition to be female taking part in wrestling championships and winning prestigiously because of their physical advantage when they're wrestling against uh, female opponents uh, you know that seems to defy common sense doesn't it i think it's a scientific empirical question i think that the 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 question is in some sports leagues i know that trans women are allowed to participate with women if they've been on hormones for a certain amount of time mm. there are some preliminary scientific studies that show that Trans women effectively, and some sport, and many sports don't really have a meaningful group advantage over cis women. Um, so in that case, I, I don't think it makes any sense to exclude um, trans women from uh, sports. I mean, but I, I again, I, I say, as I say, I think this is a matter of empirical questioning, and it's a philosophical question about what fairness in sports is supposed to mean in the first place. Um, but you know, I also think that in the current situation, you also have this case of you know trans male wrestlers competing in women's leagues because they are i mean there's the famous case of a wrestler recently discussed on twitter Mm. off many conservative commentators mistakenly thought that it was a trans woman competing who looked like you know essentially a cis man competing amongst cis women when in fact it was a trans man who the anti-trans rules of the league forced to compete with uh cis women and his testosterone advantage was you know making it unreasonable for him not to be competing in the men's league you do see that there is some that in some cases it it seems like ideology is trumping pragmatism i don't think so i think that this is a question as i said it's a philosophical question about what fairness in sports means and it's empirical question about what advantages or disadvantages do trans people have after medical transition you mentioned earlier about feminists or some feminists in particular attempting to portray trans activists as invading female spaces Mm. there is a divide and it seems to be quite a bitter divide particularly online between what's called second wave and third wave feminists do you have no sympathy at all for the second wave feminist position well i initially did have a lot of sympathy for it i think that there's you know that there is a reason why that kind of radical feminism exists. And I think that there is an important place in feminism and a central place for a discussion of, you know, the oppression that women face particularly and that trans men too face particularly because of their female reproductive role. That said, I've lost much of the sympathy that I had for people we call TERFs because this group of people I find is... Roll back for a second to explain what um, TERF means. Yeah, a trans-exclusive radical feminist, Mm -hmm. a person who thinks trans women are not women that that were sort of male invaders and then uses a kind of veneer of feminism to justify apologism for that viewpoint. I found that many people... Hold on for a second. You say veneer of feminism. Germaine Greer, the grandmother of 20th century feminism, is 
labeled a turf. Also, Linda Bellis, who I mentioned earlier. Jermaine Greer Be- made important contributions to, the fem- to feminism in the 60s and 70s. I'm not convinced that she has much relevant to say now. It do, doesn't you know, matter whether she's, I'm not has, saying that she's not anything. really a feminist, but I will say that a lot of people online anyway, who I would call TERFs, are people not really doing significant work in feminism and are people who are simply attacking trans people all day and justifying it as if they're defending women. Okay, but hold on for a second. You say attacking uh, trans women online. The amount of vitriol online against what is called TERFs, that's to say second wave feminism the people like Jermaine Greer, is hair-raising. So is the vitriol against trans women. So is the vitriol against trans women. I I would accept that it goes both ways, but the level and the volume of criticism and literally death threats against second-wave feminists, against what are called TERFs, is truly hair-raising. I don't endorse death threats against TERFs. I I wish that people would be more civil. I think it's the internet and that's just not going to happen. And I think that many people, when you ask a question like this, you seem to be only be concerned about what you know, the poor TERFs have to go through and not so concerned about what the trans women go through. Trans men too. Non-binary to be people. clear, I did interview Linda Bellas and, and the yeah. response I got was the reverse, but I don't want to create a false I mean, middle. Well, what I that. think about this is, yeah, here's what I think. I think that TERFs receive vitriol because they have a fundamentally bigoted and hostile and dangerous viewpoint, whereas I think trans women receive vitriol simply for being trans women, and I don't think that there's an equivalence in the reasons that... Um, no, no, I, I, no hold on a second. No, 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 that's, that's, yeah. objectively, that's objectively incorrect. And there's a, um, a case, particularly one that's going through um, the courts uh, in the UK, uh, where a trans woman called Tara Wolf is uh, being currently being uh, prosecuted, currently on trial for assaulting uh, a, a woman, a feminist, uh, what would be called a second wave feminist Maria McLaughlin, that arises out of an incident whereby they just sought to organise a women-only, that's to say a biological women-only feminist meeting, uh, had to keep its location secret until the last minute and were violently confronted by people who, who, and I don't want to smear all trans people like this, and I don't want to say it was necessarily trans people, but certainly people claiming to represent the, the uh, trans uh, community. I don't see what you're expecting me to say in response to this. Of course, I don't endorse violence. I don't endorse violence against TERFs, no. It, it seems to me that there's an element of the narcissism of small differences here, where two quite radical feminist positions are at daggers drawn, and there's a large amount of intolerance, and it's because of a shade of difference in ideology that most people outside the feminist world would have difficulty even understanding. I don't think it's a shade of difference. I think whether you accept trans people as part of the genders that they belong to or whether you exclude them, I think it's a major difference. I acknowledge that you say that you don't endorse it, that you say people should not make death threats and so forth. And and that's very clear from everything you do. And I understand that. But you'd have to admit that we can argue is the vitriol from one side or the other greater or lesser. That's one thing. But you'd have to admit that the vitriol from trans people is disproportionately aimed at feminists, at what they call trans-exclusionary feminists, compared to, for example, Richard Spencer. 
I don't think that's the case. I think that last year I spent a year on trans Twitter. And when, when many of these communities, Richard Spencer being punched was one of the most widely circulated meme of the year. I think that there's at least as much vitriol for him. Have a listen to this clip. This is Lacey Green. She is a YouTube sex I know, I know educator. Lacey, yeah. Is I, I'm sure you do, but I want to make sure the audience does yeah, yeah. as well. She is somebody who could not possibly be accused of being anything short of one of the most progressive voices around. Have a listen to this excerpt from an interview of hers. ...video to him, and at the time, Chris had called himself the T-word. That's how he referred to himself. Wait, the T-word? So he called himself trans? Did I just miss something? People Did are going to yell at me if I say it. Oh, God, it. something just really went over my head. The... Tranny. Oh. Tranny? Do you... yeah. yeah. Well, you're just quoting something that someone said to I you. know, but people get really mad, But whisper it a little louder. They're going to try to slit my throat. You called Chris tranny because that's the word he was using about himself. I said he's my favorite. He's, okay, so you said that Chris was your favorite tranny, a word that he was using. I know, but look, I have been violently threatened. God, it's not like we're putting this out. <laughs> you have to understand, like, I have been violently threatened yeah. many times over Isn't this. Isn't there something so... wrong when a YouTube sex educator who uses the most explicit language and discusses the most intensely personal sexual details online is afraid to use one particular word? It's a slur. I wouldn't use the N-word online. And I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that she gets death threats, but I get death threats. We all get death threats. No, no but hold on for a second. She was specifically quoting she something. She didn't want to say a slur. Yeah. She she was no she was specifically quoting somebody she had I think when she, the issue was when she was seventeen quoted somebody the the term that somebody had used on themselves. Yeah, she was quoting it, but you know it's the internet. People get angry about things a lot. You know what do you want me to do about it? I, um, I, I well, I just really want to discuss whether you think that there's a groupthink going on there. What kind of group think? Well, I think a group think, I think that, that the discussion of trans issues at all has been, uh, is very new. And I think that the it's new idea, to most people. Yes, to, to the overwhelming uh, proportion of society. Of course, there's a, a, a small section of society that have always been talking about it. But the issues and the discourse is not settled. And society's view of it is not settled. And I would have thought that it's natural that there would be a back and forth and a pushing back and forth of ideas in various directions. And I have thought that if that doesn't happen, that's quite dangerous. Well, there's going to be a back and forth of ideas and it's going on right now. I think a lot of trans people don't particularly feel like having a calm, rational discussion about whether they should get respect and rights. I think most people don't want to no, have no, a no, calm, hold on, rational no, no, discussion no, no, about no, whether they should that's, get respect that's, a, that's, a, that's a straw man. No, that's a straw man. This, this kind of thing, I think I think it's absolutely a waste of effort and, and counterproductive in the extreme for trans people to go around fussing about music festivals and, and bookshop discussion groups. Like, it's ridiculous. I think that trans people need ba bathrooms. Like, we, we, I use women's bathrooms. I've never had a problem with it. It makes sense. It doesn't, you know, it, it just works fine. And it doesn't even really need to be a discussion about that. But I think that, you know, and, and so, but I think trans people reasonably argue that we are entitled to be able to have the same access to just basic public needs as everyone else. So I think that is a, is, is a point where I will insist upon it. But as far as like radical feminists having their turf discussion group or music festivals, excluding trans women, I don't particularly care. 
Would you not agree that there is a maybe a narcissistic, attention-seeking crowd, you know, a subset of uh, trans activists who perhaps enjoy the fact that they're going after the most progressive people who are one iota away from their their um, their belief system? Um, I think more than the, the idea that it's narcissism, I think there's a sense of betrayal, the sense that these are people who ought to be supporting them or who ought to be on the same side and are not. So there's this kind of... Um, you know, it, it's in a sense like if someone who's more like you rejects you, it hurts more than if someone who's obviously an enemy rejects you. I think mm -hmm. it's that kind of thing that's going on. But I do think there's maybe been too much obsession over TERFs in particular. Of course, trans people are entitled to their rights and they're entitled to respect, but they're not entitled to close down discussion. No. And that seems to be what uh, what's going on. Who's closing down discussion? Well, for example, universities who say to doctoral students they're not allowed to uh, research a topic that might give politically incorrect results. What does that have to do with Lacey Green? Um, what it has to do with Lacey Green? Well, Lacey Green is another example of somebody who nobody could imagine is a bigot, who got a huge amount of blowback for, uh, for uh, saying something really quite innocent. I mean, it's the internet. I got a huge amount of blowback for breathing. I, I, I don't like the situation, but I really don't think that this is a nefarious plot of trans people against the, the, the population. <laughs> what do you think um, the future of free speech is? There's always been things that you really can't actually say because of practical limitations. I mean, you couldn't say in the 50s that you were a communist. You couldn't say anything even adjacent to being a communist. I think that is good. We mm -hmm. moved past that. I think that, you know, there is a, a debate about what, People can say in the workplace, for instance, whether people just spouting off their political views in the workplace. I mean, it's going to cause workplace conflict and where protecting one group versus protecting another group, what, which considerations to take. But I don't particularly I've made a couple of videos on this. I don't particularly agree with the notion that free speech is under attack in any significant way. I think this is something that's been wildly exaggerated by right wing pundits. What's your next project? Um, I'm working right now on a video about postmodernism, um, particularly the way that postmodernism has been characterized by Jordan Peterson. Natalie Parrott, the YouTuber um, for the ContraPoints channel, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and Natalie's links. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, follow Natalie Parrott at ContraPoints, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And just to remind you, I've created a Patreon account and a tip jar. So if you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. And you can even do that at no cost to yourself by using the web link to buy the books that I list in the sources on Amazon. If you buy that book or anything else at all, then the podcast gets a small commission. Coming up next Monday, that's May 28th, I'll be talking to Annie Zunneveld. She's the founder of the organization Muslims for Progressive Values. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>